academia, like society in general, is a field where there is uneven representation among different groups. Some are more present than others when it comes to decision-making, and others, conversely, are much more absent. How can research make those groups that are more absent become more visible among scholars and in society at large? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Amanda Martinez in the new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us today Amanda Martinez. Amanda is Associate Professor of Communication Studies and Sociology and also Chair in the Department of Communication Studies and Director of the Speaking Center in the Center for Teaching and Learning, all of these appointments at Davidson College, where she has served since 2012. Uh, Amanda got her BA in Multinational Organization Studies at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, her MA in Communication at the University of Houston, also in Texas, and her PhD in Communication at Texas A&M University, also in Texas, so Texas throughout. Um, she has been extremely prolific with over a dozen, a couple of dozen, sorry, um, uh, publications and is also co-editor of a book series on multinational uh, cultural uh, media studies uh, with Peter Lang Publishing Group. Um, in addition to her own work, um, she is co-founder of the leadership, uh, I'm sorry, of the Davidson Microaggressions Project um, and has held numerous leadership roles in various professional societies and is the recipient of many scholarly awards. Amanda, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much. I appreciate the warm welcome and the wonderful introduction. Thank you very much. I'm sorry for my, my mistakes. I'm, my head is still bubbling with excitement from <laughs> your outstanding presentation at the research seminar. So, Amanda, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Yeah, this is a really winding road question. <laughs> um, you know, I've thought about it a lot. I, I will admit, I used to characterize myself as an accidental academic until I decided to stop embracing that sort of imposter syndrome around my, you know, career trajectory 
And so really when I think back on it, you know, there were a couple of very pivotal moments in my path ever since I was a young person in K, you know, K through 12 school. Um, I've always been a bookworm. I'm, I've always been a straight A student. I'm, I've always been, I enjoy writing and thinking and uh, read a lot. And I've always had a lot of questions and I like to argue. <laughs> and I also like to analyze things, everything, right? So um, the other thing about me too is uh, I've always, you know, taken opportunities for just trying to pursue and try different things to nurture various interests or things that I think might help further, you know, cultivate a, a particular skill or talent or interest that I have. So um, early on, I had job experience, you know, um, that were real big game changers for me that helped me see what kind of working environments elements that I like and absolutely don't like. Um, so a couple of easy examples is just, you know, in college, I thought I was going to go to law school. I even had um, the summer before my senior year in college, I had an internship with um, an international law firm in Spain. And that was great for a number of reasons. But I left that experience knowing that there was no way I was going to go to law school, um, you know, for a number of reasons after um, that experience it was just very challenging. And uh, the emotional labor involved in that kind of work, I just realized I, I don't that's not that's going to be fast burnout. And I'm not going to be happy and, you know, don't want to spend money on law school for that. Um, so, you know, I was kind of conflicted in college. Um, senior year, I lived at the Career Center. I my advisor, I lived in his office too. He was so great, Dr. Kandia. He was uh, like a sweet grandfatherly figure for me, um, and and you know he just he helped me a lot. I'm also a product of good mentorship. Um, you know, I knew that I didn't want a corporate job. I wasn't sure about journalism, but was sort of interested. And then we kind of arrived at a point um, where I realized, oh, you know, maybe I should just get a master's degree to buy some time and figure myself out. And I like being in, I like school, you know, I like my uh, minor in communication studies. So let me pursue that further. And then um, a real pivotal, honestly, one of the biggest pivotal points at that point was that I took a I noticed a Chicana feminism class on the books at my uh, at University of Houston, and um, I took that class and it completely changed my life. I had not really had deep exposure to this uh, until that point. And, um, you know, upon reflection too, that I was always in office hours. I was just so interested in all of it, uh, you know, felt represented. I saw things. I noticed these gaps and uh, just like extreme marginalization, all kinds of things historically and in the workforce through the readings we were doing. And so um, I contacted, you know, I would go to the professor's office all the time. And in reflection now, I realized that she, you know, she was a middle-aged adjunct professor and, you know, she was just absolutely wonderful. I just, I don't know that she realized how much she helped shape my um, path, but you know, um, that was really eye opening. One thing I learned through those classes was that we looked at statistics of I, I don't know what the topic was, but we were for some reason looking at statistics about workplace environments and higher education and um, that kind of thing. And women of color and, and Latina women in particular are just so extremely underrepresented, if not absent from these high power, you know, high impact kind of spaces that require higher education. So I was just, you know, stunned by this and I felt really offended by it, you know, and like had this sense of urgency to want to do something or want to be part of something bigger, 
you know, um, just changing those numbers. I thought, I oh my gosh, this is just mind blowing. I don't know, how can this be, you know? Uh, and then what was happening at the same time as that is I um, got opportunities to do research with a professor, the graduate director at the time in my department. And, you know, he was also taking on uh, the editor in chief position of a communication studies journal. He asked me to be an editorial assistant. You know, he just really mentored me, like I think acknowledged or recognized um you know potential in me and then invited me to things professionally that really helped me to even think about the possibility of an academic career because I went into a master's not necessarily I'm not one of those people that thought from a young age you know oh I'm gonna get all of the education um and I'm you know I never even saw professor as a possibility for myself it just wasn't in the realm of possibilities and so uh you know this mentoring and exposure to the research world and we co-authored some things and he helped network me at um you know national conference and essentially we reached a point where he was convincing me to get a PhD and I was like oh, I don't know I was finishing my thesis research you know I was like oh I don't know if I want to do more that much more school you know I'm not sure and um, uh, my advisor, he, he, then he became my advisor, he was very persistent. Um, and and, and I, I thought, okay, you know, you're right, I'm persuaded. Um, so I, you know, I applied and, and was lucky to get in the first time I applied and get money in, so off I went. Um, so, you know, but one, the other thing I wanna point out on this question briefly is that um, I, I went on to the PhD really without the intention of, I wanna be a tenure track tenured professor. I, I just haven't, even though I've always been a good student and very, you know, have a lot of um, interest in just uh, thirst for knowledge and searching, seeking out information, learning more, I've just never really had a sense of elitism. Um, you know, so I was learning all these things about academia, like all these critiques about, you know, the ivory tower and how exclusionary it is and uh, just the job market, you know, there's so few tenure track jobs and, and things like that. So. Um, I was really open-minded towards the end of my PhD experience. Um, and I realized the job market was not great. So I was actually pretty open-minded about, you know, okay, there's gonna be a fork in the road. I'm either going to be successful on the job market, academic job market, or I'm gonna do something else that nurture, you know, that further respects and values and allows me to nurture my, you know, research and teaching and writing and analysis and analytical skills. Um, so at the same time that I was dissertating and finishing up and on the academic job market, I was also already kind of networking and dabbling in litigation consulting because I had some friends who had done that with their PhDs. And that's a space in industry where you get paid pretty decently and the attorneys and firms that you work for value your PhD <laughs> and your research skills. And so, um, yeah, so so. You know, and here I am because luckily I, you know, was successful in the job market and um, at, at a type of institution that I wanted to be at. Because the other thing I knew is the R1, um, you know, environment where it's very lopsided with respect to teaching research, you know, what matters to tenure. I felt like that's not really me either. I do like balance, right? Um, small liberal arts environment where there's a yeah, your teaching informs your research and they care about both productivity and you know intellectual uh freedom and those kinds of things so yeah that that's that's my path with several pivotal points that helped me get here that's excellent thank you so much for sharing i i have several questions about different um uh pivotal points um let me start with the following how was 
the transition from your master's to your PhD. Why Texas A&M and how was your experience there? Oh, that's a great question. Um, let's see. Houston is located, or U of H is located in Houston, which is a huge, very diverse city on a number of levels, um, which I really loved, like totally my type of environment. And uh, going to AM was a very big culture shock. It's only an hour and 20 minutes, right, from Houston Drive. It's easy drive. I, a lot of times I was not even in College Station on the weekends. I was always in Houston at coffee shops working because um, it just needed the, the just even just being in the immersive space of diversity and difference was refreshing to me and college station is not that way so um i made the decision because i got two offers for phd programs that included money significant money and so um the other option was oklahoma which uh is just you know would have put me way more out of a comfort zone um for a number of reasons so i chose texas a&m um and you know some scholars there i wanted to work with and that kind of thing so the experience moving there a m is a pretty homogenous space in my experience in my opinion um demographically right it is yeah, very interestingly kind of uh parsed out with you know international students live here and it, you know there's like like um brown and black people live in Bryan, and it's it's a not only is it very white um it's all the institution and the student body is also very um the students are pretty conservative they're pretty christian uh most of them are christian they're they're all pretty religious and also politically conservative so i definitely felt like uh my my um difference along a number of those identity intersections to be very salient as I navigated those spaces. Uh, and, you know, I guess the residual effect of that kind of space is there's a real politeness culture, like a Southern hospitality kind of thing going on there. Uh, so, so teaching was pleasant, you know, um, I like teaching, it was great, that kind of thing. But at the same time, um, I do think had I not, I think I would have still find, found my way to these kind of research topics that I do. Um, you know, about stereotypes and, and people of color centrism and all of that. But I do think that spending four years completing my PhD at AM made very salient and stark in many ways the importance of race, racism, and, you know, just difference. And I, I realized, oh my gosh, all my best friends from my cohort are either fellow people of color, and there was not a there you know weren't a lot of us but or international students those were my best friends that's who i hung out with or i just avoided living in college station you know i'd be there for the week for my seminars and then go to houston and come home you know to work in my favorite uh, tea house or coffee shop um so yeah um it, it was just was a very jarring experience to go from the rich diversity that is just normalized little things going back to houston the you know the big starbucks you just walk in, you can hear like five different languages being spoken. It's wonderful. I don't know what anyone's saying, but I love it. It just, just feels better to be around this, you know, just uh, normalized diversity. Um, whereas I felt much more spotlighted and tokenized um, 
in uh, A&M settings, you know, and I always say, well, the department and the, the professors are awesome. It's just like everything else <laughs> about the environment that the school's in. That was really challenging. So that was absolutely an environmental contextual sort of turning point for me. And did that shape your um, job search process and how, if so? Oh, yes. Uh, not necessarily, because I was, you know, um, my husband and I are, I mean, he's supportive and, and his job is flexible, his line of work is flexible. So we decided that I could be, you know, not geographically limited. And also, you know, it, I watched peers who did have limitations or restrictions, right, geographically because of their partner's job or, you know, whatever reasons. And um, their options are just far more limited because, you know, just what's available. And, um, you know, I, I think if you want to, the tenure track market is really hard because you have more opportunity if you're more willing to go anywhere. And so th I, that it didn't factor in, but um, I definitely realized that I would be more excited about like the small liberal arts college environments. Those were kind of like gem types of jobs that I thought, ooh, I would like to. And in part because I went to one as an undergrad. So I had the experience as an undergrad at a small liberal arts environment. Then I went to our, you know, our ones for master's and PhD. And so I had that comparative experience that helped me to realize. And then I also, you know, it was kind of interesting too to, I, I like teaching. I think um, even that can be a little edgy, <laughs> uh, especially in an R1 environment where the goal of the department, you know, in subtle and not so subtle ways is to try and uh, get their their PhD graduates into R1 institution tenure track jobs. And I did find myself less excited about those kinds of positions and way more excited about the ones that I applied to that seemed, you know, a little more holistic, like the whole person, right? That values how research, teaching, and service kind of can inform one another because I um, have been able to do that in this position that I have. So I'd say it's been, um, things worked out very well and it's been a good fit for me. That's excellent. So let's talk a little bit about the, the service component because you've had, as I alluded to in my very botched introduction, um, uh, a number of uh, leadership roles already in a career that post PhD is just a decade, right? So, I mean, relative to the, the, the norm, you've had much more leadership exposure and contributed much more to shaping your local institution that you know, typical person 10 years out. You're the department chair, you founded a major project. Um, you've also had, had had important leadership roles at the National Communication Association, for instance. Um, so what does service and leadership mean to you and how does that connect using your own term holistically to your life as a researcher and as a teacher? Yeah, I think because um, I, I didn't have a lot of preconceived ideas or expectations in my path. And because of that, I think that that has helped 
me to have a much more open mind about where I can find fulfillment, you know, and I think the personal and the professional are definitely reinforcements of one another because I, um, you know, ha am not somebody who necessarily can always distinguish, you know, okay, my I stop here and then my job starts there, right? I'm invested in the type of work that I do because I think there is potential to, you know, um, agitate for change, make a difference, you know, prompt critical thought. I mean, and you can, you know, not to sound so, <laughs> I guess, Pollyanna about it, but very, there are opportunities, you know, because of the flexibility and the freedom that is involved in this unique type of environment. So um, I have also been, I, I found spaces of support uh, that can take research and teaching and then it can inform service projects, right? Um, because I think that's important. I, I definitely want to be the type of scholar, you know, or intellectual or academic person who is able to be relatable um, because other, you know, otherwise I kind of feel like what, what does it matter what I'm doing? You know, uh, if, if me and two other people care about <laughs> something I'm doing. So I think there's always been like this real world component that excites me about things. Um, and definitely I've been kind of pegged by others, right? I think a lot of times I haven't necessarily seen myself or sought out things like leadership roles necessarily. I think a lot of times it has been somebody else saying, oh, you'd be great for this and here's why. Would you like to do that? And then there've been other things I'm like, oh, we should do this, you know? And then um, just being able to find grant money that will fund what you want to do. And once you have it, you can do what you want with it because you have this idea that you want to come to fruition. So I think that has been um, really exciting about like how the three can go together. I know everybody's like, oh, you know, service is just not as important, um, at least not to the tenure track and tenure you know, process. But um, I, I do think that if it's related to what I'm already doing, then it's just another avenue for accessibility, you know, of, of your work and impact and potential benefit um, or and collaboration. Right. I mean, I also learn myself um, from not keeping my head in a, a solely kind of elite academic cloud. Very interesting. And, and your experience of your various leadership roles. Uh, and in it, you know, that experience in, in relation to your positionality as a Latina, how has that uh, been for you? Oh, yeah. Uh, I am definitely seen as somebody who, this is people reflecting back to me, you know, I'm, I'm seen as somebody who, is, who cares and is confident and, you know, is organized and does good work and all that kind of thing. So I think, you know, I think more of the issue now in this stage of my career is more about, okay, now that I know that great, but that doesn't mean I have to do everything, everything that comes my way. Right. So saying no and investing time and energy into the things that also fulfill me and then make the best use of who I am. Right. Where can I be the most productively disruptive or useful, you know, to these various spaces. And so, um, I do. I, I will say that since grad school, I, you know, I've had the kind of typical experience of 
feeling tokenized, um, being treated, you know, as, you know, oh, you're, you're a diversity person, you know, um, <laughs> and, and that, you know, just obviously is meant to diminish and you know, obviously micro aggress your potential, right. And, and you're deserving of your position. And so I think one of the things I've had to do is, I always care about find, like taking leadership roles where I can leverage my positionality that'll be helpful to whatever the space is, but also to help kind of pave a way, right? Because then when you it allows you to envision possibilities for other people to see what's possible, right? And and I mean envision possibilities for what's possible, but even have that imagination in the first place, right? And um so I think that is important too, and further kind of like chiseling away at this sort of brick wall <laughs> that says, okay, we only allow in token diversity people to these grad programs. And, you know, um, I, I think, you know, two of the things that have been really challenging that are constant ongoing self-work that I focus on is work confronting, recognizing, confronting, and working through imposter syndrome is definitely, uh, you know, just something that when you're just extremely underrepresented, um, you know, you got to claim your space and own your space and you deserve to be there. And and none of this is all just happenstance. You know, you've done all these things that have built to you being where you are and accomplishing what you have and deserving the things that you've, you know, earned through your position and your work. Um, so it's, it's imposter syndrome. Um, and then it's also just realizing that you can at the same time chart a path but that doesn't mean that you need to overwork and burn out um, i'm not great at that honestly i'm not because i have to check myself all the time on it like it's not like i've learned any lessons post-tenure you know it's, a, it's just post-tenure i know that i can okay here's what i'm doing i'm doing way too much on this and that's why i'm burning out why am i doing this is the, you know a collaborative investment can be the thing but i think a lot of times when you are so severely underrepresented you do feel like you take on this weight, you know, there's a, uh, the burden of representation um, applies to your, you know, this work life as well, because you, there's, there are less of you. So you feel like you have to, you know, internalize the collectivist sensibilities of um, caring for or the community or giving back or representing it well, right. Um, and also, I'm, I'm always focused on, okay, how can I use my positionality to also bring in other people right like mentor them recognize well a lot of times people don't know what they don't know so if you can be proactive in that kind of space you know and not hyper individualistic post-tenure then um or, or you know as somebody who's quote unquote technically a senior scholar now um then i think that's a good thing you know i've, I've embraced that because it it feels better i think it's better when there are more of us absolutely and Building on that, since you referred a few times already to the tenure moment, right? Um, how so? Th th there are in in the in the trajectory of a uh, scholar in the U.S. Um, within the tenure system, there are two main moments. One is getting the job first, and the other is getting tenure, after, right? Um, What, what was it like for you at these two critical junctures, right? And what changed after you cross to the other side? First, 
from graduate student to faculty and then from untenured to tenured faculty. What were the, what changes? I'm sorry, can you tell me? Right, what changed, you know, did, did anything, because you said, well, now I have to, I can say, well, I don't need to take everything on board, right? Um, so um, did anything change? I was assuming that something changed, which is my bad. So yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Cross mm -hmm. yes. from one to the other. No, that makes total sense. Yes. Uh, you know, what's very interesting is there's, um, actually, this is probably a little bit unexpected, but what changed was actually what you wouldn't expect. What changed was I felt very protected in this little bubble of you know, it, on the on the road to tenure, right? Once I get, you know, graduate school, successful job, okay. Um, and, and I guess to back up just a little bit, <laughs> this probably speaks volumes, but I wasn't real forthcoming or vocal, or I wouldn't offer up the information that I was, that I was giving myself essentially one year post PhD on the job market to find a tenure track job. And if I wasn't successful, then I was moving on to litigation consulting. I wasn't telling people this really, but I was actively nurturing both paths and I realized I would take either one. So I think that's actually a little controversial because um, I didn't feel so strongly that I my validation of my PhD would come from a particular type of job uh, or a particular type of institution. I mean, I definitely was like, I don't, care about this rhetoric around R1s. I don't think that's where I'll be happy. So, you know, I'm willing to cast a bigger net and uh, it's my career anyway, you know, post PhD. So what do, what is, where am I going to find fulfillment? And then, um, so then securing the job, great. That's the path we're going in. Okay. Um, so then on the tenure track, one of the crucial changes was being given the space to really develop a research agenda beyond, uh, you know, your dissertation or beyond like those things that you had started doing in your grad seminar papers. And uh, of course, those things have been foundational for me. Absolutely. But that freedom and flexibility was really a breath of fresh air. And I also felt this protective bubble around service, you know, and um, not doing too much. Right. So I have had very good mentors and advocates who are senior scholars both at my institution and elsewhere that have you know provided mentorship guidance and um also actively protected you know quote unquote protected me from getting you know as an underrepresented woman of color in academia you know who is passionate and competent and speaks up you know uh, I mean, that's like a golden ticket for a ton of, you know, getting overloaded with work, like that kind of service work, I guess. And so um, I definitely feel like I was able, because I was shielded to tenure, I was able to do minimal, if not really meaningful depth service. And so that was great. And those kind of leadership roles I embraced and was fine with. Um, and then after tenure, um, just kind of this assumption once you're at the associate level, for me, it was pretty immediate, but that's the dynamics of being at a small institution with, we had a lot of changes and retirements and things happening. So I'm the most senior member of my department. Um, so one of the challenges there was, there's an assumption that you are going to kind of relax a little bit, or you don't have a choice, but to assume all these uh, administrative positions, or a lot of people actually do pursue administration at that point, right? Um, 
I don't I don't want to have like a dean position or be a president or anything like that of an academic institution that I don't desire that kind of service. But leadership roles where I have something to offer and especially around, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, the, that is, yes, I want to do that work, right? Um, especially if I see it as productive, meaningful, you know, going to result in some tangible changes for just making these places and these structures better, you know, for, for others, for myself, um, th those kinds of things, right? So I would say those have been the kind of two distinctions that have been interesting sort of reframes and shifts around that are definitely marked by these crucial moments of, okay, now you're on this path. All right. And now you're here, you know? And so I would, I guess I would characterize these as with, uh, with privilege and power comes a lot of responsibility and expectation. So that can be a little hard to negotiate for yourself, you know, in the personal professional balance. Excellent. Um, I, I want to go back to um, something that you said in, in this uh, answer in the, during the middle of it, that you felt significant intellectual freedom that that would be my characterization you didn't use these words but that's how i understood it um once you started on the tenure track right that you had the foundations from seminar papers etc etc but you had freedom to you know more freedom to choose research program develop um you gave today a rousing seminar exceedingly original at our seminar series and and very energizing um how do you come up with research topics and how do you come up with research questions and how do you do you craft your research program and identity mm. uh, this is a great question <clears throat> so Part of what I cut out of my seminar today, um, but was still over, you know, pushing time is since my PhD program, I came to a point where I made it my own personal agenda that I wanted to kind of go against the grain of these stereotypical assumptions that, you know, women don't really do quantitative research or it's like largely the domain domain of like white men because it's about object objectivity and you know you're distanced as a research from that those kinds of methods and i i thought okay fine but i don't i want i want to learn it and i want some experience with it at least so i can understand it i want to understand this type of um gaining knowledge right of, of seeking knowledge um, and so I made it, I did the same thing, you know, I've always known that I lean qualitatively, but I, um, I, I took advanced methods classes in both qualitative and quantitative research as a PhD um, candidate or student. And so from that point, you know, I, I, I have tried to keep an open mind uh, for my research around what are the questions I'm asking? What am I interested in? And I push my students to what, what's the so what? Why does this matter? What's the so what question? Who cares? Who cares? So what? So what? You know, and that just if you keep asking yourself, so what? You keep pushing yourself to get to what you're doing and, and what do you really want to do? What do you want to know? So my approach in kind of broadening my um, you know, my training with method uh, methods classes at the advanced level as a PhD student was very intentional so that I could, you know, just I don't want to be limited, 
Because a lot of times I, I hope I don't think it's necessarily the same way now. But when I was in that position 10 years ago, it was definitely like, OK, so are you going to be a quant person or a qual person? And then that totally dictated the types of classes you took, the professors, you know, that would become your mentors or your advisors or your committee members. And um, I felt kind of troubled by those limitations because I didn't feel like it made sense for me to choose method before I even really knew what questions I wanted to seek answers to. So having behind me, like just being equipped with these different method approaches made me actually feel like a like a little freer in terms of, okay, here are the questions. Now, what's the best way to go about trying to understand these questions? So I actually began um, the stereotype humor research. Um, my dissertation was a quantitative one and it was an experiment and it definitely had to do with a lot of these themes from today. Um, and, you know, I, I published an article from it and then I kind of like took a break from this topic for many years and did a lot of other things. And then um, th this stereotype humor approach, I'm actually picking up a research, a limitation that I myself put forth in my article, quantitative article, was, which was my entry point with this topic. Um, and so, you know, I, I just kind of got like this rejuvenation of interest around this idea. So I knew, I knew, you know, what's missing from this. This is definitely um, a contribution to the field. It's been published, um, but at the same time, this is not the whole story. And the whole, the big, the the fuller, as you said, more nuanced story is definitely going to be about these stories the stories that people themselves share about their experiences, about their interpretations, about the frustrations around their identities and, you know, the power and potential of stereotypes and all of that. So um, I, I think that's why I felt so free is because I already had recognized imposed limitations from the grad school days and didn't accept them, you know, so that I then was able to feel pretty equipped with, okay, so now what do I want to do and what's the best way to do it? And um, yeah, so I think that that freedom um, has it's it's worked really well. <laughs> it, it served me in the way that I had hoped it might. Um, yeah, so so questions um, oftentimes come from. I would definitely say that my research, I, I, I am definitely on this um, kind of agenda of prioritizing who's absent who and what is absent what is missing from this picture you know whether it's health communication work i've done or uh media effects mass comm types of interests you know what do we not really know you know and then how can i add that or or amplify that or or be inclusive you know so i think a lot of i mean my work is pretty focused on the history, you know, centering the historically marginalized and underrepresented, definitely people of color, women, um, just kind of like normalizing diversity, equity and inclusion by infusing it to drive my focus um, as, you know, uh, in, in my research agenda. And so I think that is, that has been my motivation because there's so much to do. I mean, the, you know, there's a possessive investment in white whiteness um, as just default. And um, that has been very glaring to me and probably I'm in a position to recognize it more starkly because of who I am, you know, because I didn't come to academia, you know, I didn't grow up in a upper 
class wealthy family. My parents are at college educated. I grew up middle class, but you know, I didn't grow up imagining like I'm going to be a professor since I was five years old. Like, so I'm driven more by a curiosity and um, wanting to be inclusive and also deepen complexities that I perceive are lacking from bodies of knowledge. I'm interested in engaging those discussions and, and um, yeah. Okay, then that leads me quite nicely to, to my last question. So if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? Yes, that is a very fun question. And I wish I had this magical Harry Potter wand. <laughs> I would be casting all kinds of spells to you know, fix things. But um, the thing that most readily comes to mind for me is I, maybe I'm just not a patient person, but I would really, I feel like things move so slow and change moves so slow and oftentimes you know, I'm like, why can't this is low hanging fruit? Why can't this just here's how we make this happen? <laughs> you know, um, so I would like to expedite the more radical kind of shaking off of the taken for granted investment in whiteness, you know, or or just investment in this kind of like narrow, traditionally upheld way of, you know, approaching things like theorizing. Um, developing research projects, designing a study even, you know, um, methods approaches we, you know, I talked about just a minute ago, but like, at the same time, I was troubled by this quantitative dominance, you know, because I just don't buy objectivity and detaching as a researcher and all that. Um, I, I thought, okay, I want to, I want some experience with this, though, because like, I'm going to critique it, but I, I want to know it myself to have stronger critiques <laughs> and also think about the ways to broaden this, you know, um, but we see it with theory, you know, we see it with just kind of taken for granted exclusionary practices. Um, you know, I mean, something so simple as, you know, looking at racial identity as an independent variable, and it's just assumed as a neutral non salient identity for white people, but for people of color, it's assumed that it's a salient identity. And I'm like, but how do you know? Um, probably it is. Of course, for me, it absolutely is. For a lot of people it is, but you know, there's just these little ways in which there's this like normalization of, I don't know if it's just like a default white elite way of thinking that, uh, you know, I, I would say my career is devoted entirely <laughs> to, you know, just pushing to, to pushing against these kinds of things that I notice, you know, either by who I am, the type of work I do, the questions I'm asking, the research I, you know, really invest my energy in. Um, and yeah, that, that's one of the things that I that I want to wave a wand and say, can we just be done with all of this? Because, um, you know, there's a lot and we tend to like make everything academic. So there's these special forums or, you know, fine, we can use the existing channels to provoke this kind of critique and, and improve and diversify and, you know, just expand possibilities and options for people in, in academia. But um, I think an outcome of my magical superpower would be not just inclusion, but more of us across all subfields. 
you know, and that just goes back to that Chicana feminism class story that there, you know, there's still a tiny percentage of us. Um, in my cohort <clears throat> for tenure, there were three of us who are women of color, two black women and myself. And, you know, we looked at the stats and I'm like, oh, great. They're, they're still tiny, you know, um, Latino women with tenure in tenured positions, it's like 2%. For black women, it's like 3%, you know, across across the nation. So it's just like, okay, well, um, yay <laughs> for being part of that tiny percentage. Um, so yeah, I mean, I do think positionality matters, but I think also what you do with it in those, it, when you're a part of the kind of, I guess, academic club as, as we are, as I am in this position um, is, it, it's important, right? It's important to just, point out things that are taken for granted or uh, cultivate ways to make space for new possibilities, you know, whether that's tangibly through research or what you choose to focus on, right? Um, I did include, you know, multiracial, white, African-American, Asian, like everybody is in my focus group research from the seminar today. Because um, I think it's important too, we don't also exist in these bubbles where we're not in in interactions with each other you know so i think that kind of intergroup dynamics are always at play um and as much as i might like to kind of hunker down into a little brown privilege bubble for myself <laughs> in um you know elite academia I, I realize that that's not necessarily always possible i mean it's one thing to create community and nurture that because it's beneficial to you and you're not just surviving but thriving you know but at the same time i, I don't think it's realistic so um, you know, this tension between what can you do, but also in, in that existing structure, but also how can you help change the structure? And that's what I think is really a, a very positive um, lived experience that I continue to have as, you know, a woman of color academic who's highly underrepresented um, just generally, but who does, you know, occupy some positions of power and privilege um, to help make decisions or, you know, choose to publish what I want or spend my time on what I want, teach what I want. You know, the stereotypes classes, I was like, oh, I wonder if it'll be controversial wrong among my colleagues, but I, the students love it. I mean, it's, you know, it's been wildly successful and popular and they've been so helpful to even the way I think about this topic. So um, I think, you know, there's also that mutual uh, benefit from that investment, right? It's not just like you reach it as a marginalized person and then top down because you're at the top. So. Yeah, I think that's a long-winded answer to a really fun question. So thank you for asking me it and giving me the chance to respond to it. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and it's, it was a great answer. So thank you very much, Amanda, for a really enlightening and fun conversation. Uh, thank you to our listeners for staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you for having me. Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi. <laughs>